1: Welcome to the Firing Line. The Firing Line radio show is brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside, the Riverside Indoor Shooting Range, CCW Safe, Mop and Financial Advisors, Cutting Edge Bullets for When You Care Enough to Send the Very Best, Prado Olympic Shooting Park in Chino, and Vortex Optics. Vortex, the Force of Optics. And now your host, Philip Nayman. Ah!
2: Good. Bad. I'm the guy with the gun. Hello, folks. Welcome to another edition of the first edition of the year a Firing Line Radio Show. This is Philip Nayman. I hope you had a great set of holidays there, Christmas and New Year's, and lots of changes here for 2018 for those of you in the Second Amendment world. It's kind of interesting. The uh, California Department of uh, Injustice um, has failed to give full regulations out for ammunition loading but at the same time they've legalized marijuana so obviously california politicians have their areas where they want to to use the time and so forth and second amendment protecting your rights isn't one of them there are a lot of changes here for 2018 under the firearms laws we've talked about them all year long all last year next week we'll actually focus on that specifically but this show i wanted to finish up on a few things we had a uh, cliffhanger in the month of december where i had dr stanley campbell the coo of ccw (laughs) safe out and don west esquire don west is a famous criminal attorney he actually handled the zimmerman case and amongst many others uh we're talking about self-defense shooting and kind of the four elements that we run into or that are similar in self-defense shootings dan you want to clarify that
3: yeah and 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 actually uh i'm going to allow don to step in um you know, before we left last year, and Happy New Year to everyone! And I hope it was a safe New Year for you. Um, we we talked about a couple of series that we're gonna, you know, share with the audience and 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 Phil and um, the powers that be here. You know, saw you know the need to share information with with the audience and the listeners. You know, references self defense shooting cases. So we're gonna do a series as we move forward in the next several months. But this particular one, you know, um, we left off talking about the Zimmerman trial. And um, I'm, I want to have Don West step in and kind of break down, you know, uh, what we see and what we're calling the elements of self-defense. If you don't mind, Don. Sure, happy to stand. Hey, Phil, thanks yes, for sir. having. Uh, thanks for having us
2: back. Uh, we're so glad you made the time in your in your busy schedule here to uh, talk to us out here in Southern California because we are the neglected, uh, red-haired stepchildren of the firearm community. So thank you for helping us out here. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, over to uh, to Stan's point, uh, we were trying to look at a way we could examine self-defense cases from around the country and identify not so much legal elements, that is, not specific findings that the jury or the court would have to make, but sort of some common factors that seem to be important when you looked back and tried to analyze a self-defense incident.
2: So again, to, to, to today, capitalize to capitalize sorry. that, it's these are not legal elements in a justified self-defense shooting. These are just commonalities you've seen the DA focus on.
4: Yes, yes. And uh, by not being legal elements more specifically, that means that these are not specifically factors that would be written into the law. That the prosecutor would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, a legal element is basically a piece of the law that has to be established beyond a reasonable doubt as uh, the prosecutor heads down the path toward a conviction. These elements, as we 're calling them, are really more focus points and uh, point of view that we think, while may not meeting a strict legal standard, do shed some light and offer some insight into analyzing a self-defense case, and we think are probably pretty important factors from the moment of the event through the police investigation, an analysis by the district attorney, and then ultimately aspects of the case that the jury will, will take into account. They'll put themselves in the shoes of the defendant, the person on trial for uh Using self-defense, and then we'll sort of take a look at how they saw this thing unfold. Those uh, those elements that we're talking about here for our purposes, one is uh, location. We've talked about that in more detail earlier. Location: where did where did the event take place? Was it in someone's home? Was it in a, a public area where everyone is allowed to be, and so forth? Sometimes the laws can vary a little bit depending on when it, uh, where it takes place, but we do think that that is an important aspect uh, of a self-defense shooting. Uh, we're talking about Zimmerman specifically, and in this instance, the location of where the event took place was in a public area behind some townhomes in the uh, community where Zimmerman lived and where Trayvon Martin was visiting. The next sort of focal point on taking a look at self-defense cases in general, we talk about escalation. And let me back up just for a second. Escalation can have a legal significance in that, in most jurisdictions, if you provoke the use of force, if you are considered to be the initial aggressor legally, then you can sometimes void or uh, just you won't have the opportunity to use lawful self-defense if you are considered the initial aggressor. Escalation is different than that. When we talk about escalation, we're talking about how the overall event unfolded and what may have been various points in time where either the attacker or the attacked may have made some decisions which caused the event to further escalate or may have actually de-escalate the situation and uh, helped avoid completely a uh, a violent confrontation.
2: You know, I think it's it's one of the things like the best fight you've ever been in is the one you avoided. You know, it's that kind of a thing because it's... If you have the chance to de-escalate something, that's, that has to be where you go. Mm-hmm. Because as we've talked about before with uh, you know the services CCW Safe has, if you're involved in a life and death self-defense incident, your life is fundamentally changed forever. And you know, you're know you bringing on a world of legal issues, whether you're in the right or not, it's still going to happen to you. And so de-escalation, really, that needs to be our mindset. As CCW carriers, you're not the aggressor, right? You're, you're not the aggressor. You are the de-escalator in all times.
3: Yeah, and, and then just to piggyback what you're saying, um, Phil, um, you know, our, our greatest challenges this past year, I'm um, talking about for 2017, uh, for our members uh, was, was brandishing acts and, and road rage incidents. Um, I mean, you would think that our murder case would be more difficult, but it was actually those. It's the ones where, you know, people allow their ego to get the best of them and they do this escalation that we're talking about, you know, and, you know, they fail to drive away. They roll down the window to engage, um, invite the person closer, you know, all of those things that get you in trouble. And especially here in California, because we, we had a case here in California that was, well, I mean, the D.A. was really going after big charges for this this gentleman. And, um, you know, we had to fight for him. Uh, and thank God, you know, we, we kept him getting those felony charges. But. I mean, it's not a game. I mean, these DAs are really going after you guys, especially in California. Uh, so you have to use your head and, you know, make sure that pulling that weapon, displaying that weapon, all of that is a last resort. And if you can just drive away and be a, a good witness instead of an involved person, that's what we need you guys to do.
2: And think about this in California, folks. Look at the Attorney General, um, Jerry Brown, Kamala Harris, right, Baccaro. All these people are rabid anti-gunners for the last, what, Twenty years. So when you think about that, what is that department going to look like all the way down through er- everywhere? All of these DAs are going to re- reflect that because they all want to move up the food chain. So they're going to have kind of like political thought. So if they have an opportunity to throw the book at somebody on something like this and, and shed CCWs in a bad light, I'm going to bet you fifty bucks right now. Is that legal in the state? I don't know. Maybe maybe we should bet some marijuana. I don't know. What it is. <laughs> I'll bet you 50 bucks that they're going to take every chance they can to go hardball on this. So you have to make sure you're protected on that. Don, I don't want to take any more of your time. Go ahead.
4: But you make an excellent point, Phil. And let me underscore that by saying we're talking about uh, avoiding a confrontation, if at all possible. I'm assuming that you had the legal right to defend yourself and that ultimately that person will be acquitted or exonerated. I'm not talking about the guy who's trigger-happy and is looking for trouble and then trying to get away with it. I'm talking about people that are legitimately in self-defense scenarios where there might have possibly been some way to avoid it. And they didn't, and they acted in legal self-defense. I defy finding anyone that's been involved in a lethal self-defense shooting that hasn't been permanently affected by that experience emotionally, uh, financially, legally. Sometimes it'll take a year, two right. years.
2: You, you and know, and, and if you don't profit. understand that, take a look at that shooting that happened in, in Texas where the uh, civilian came out with his AR-15 and barefooted, and, and he was in tears. He, was, he saved probably, you know, tens of scores of lives. But he was in tears over that. He did not want that to happen. Folks, this is Philip Naman, Firing Land Radio Show. We'll be right back after this with Don West Esquire and Dr. Stan Campbell, <laughs> COO of CCW Safe. We'll see yeah. you on the other side.
5: A message from Vince, the owner of Bullseye Sport Guns and Ammo in Riverside. If you're a first time gun owner or thinking about purchasing your first firearm, whether for hunting, home defense,
6: or recreational shooting, it is important to take the next step and become a responsible gun owner. We highly recommend that you attend a certified firearm safety and training class, one that will teach you the basic knowledge, skills, and attitude essentials to the safe and efficient use of your firearm. As a law-abiding citizen, you have the right to self-defense, and with that right comes an obligation to educate yourself on the
5: laws and safety procedures needed to use a firearm properly. For information about certified firearm training classes, call Bullseye Sport in Riverside at 951-823-0211. Or check out their schedule of classes at BullseyeSport.com. Because of Bullseye Sport Guns and Ammo, we believe in safety first. 951-823-0211. Pull!
1: the answer this portion of the firing line is brought to you by bullseye sports in riverside and cutting-edge bullets for when you care enough to send the very best
4: all right you primitive screw heads listen
1: up see this this
7: is my boomstick
2: Hello, folks. Every week on the Firing Line radio show, the conversation revolves around firearms, hunting, gun rights afforded to all Americans under the Second Amendment to the Constitution. And our faithful companion in the battle to uphold these rights has been our longtime sponsor, Vince Torres, at Bullseye Sports Guns and Ammo in Riverside. If you're not armed for protection or recreation, then Bullseye Sport in Riverside is where you need to go. For small arms, rifles, shotguns, ammo, accessories, and much more, and after you purchase that firearm, Vince and I highly recommend you attend a certified firearm safety and training course and by CCW Safe Coverage. One that will teach you the basic knowledge, skills, and attitude essential to the safe and efficient use of your firearm. For more information on the certified firearm courses, call Bullseye Sport in Riverside. 951-823-0211. Visit their website, bullseyesport.com, for a schedule of classes, because Bullseye Sports, guns, and ammo, they believe in safety first. 951-823-0211, or tap the AM590 app. Vince is going to be on the show next week, going over all the changes. We have in the 2018. So welcome him here next week. And uh, we'll go over that with them. So coming back here, I have uh, Don West Esquire. He's a criminal defense attorney. He's uh, famous for defending um, Zimmerman and uh, successfully defending Zimmerman, which wasn't the most easy of cases to defend. And we just talked about some of the four elements of, of self-defense shooting. We talked about the location, escalation, de-escalation, and we want to pick it up from there um, with reasonable fear, I think is the next one. Right, Stan?
3: Yeah. Hey, hey Don, did you have uh, just a little bit more to finish up on escalation?
2: Oh,
4: just to wrap that up, escalation in our context is uh Sometimes you only know that by hindsight because you aren't necessarily aware of the significance of what you're doing at that moment and how it might affect the scenario. But there clearly are situations where you know that by what you say or how you act that you are likely to provoke a more aggressive response or perhaps likely to de-escalate, while escalation is the word we chose, the key word is de-escalation, and as Phil said, the best fight you can have is the one you don't, the one you avoid.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, and then, and then Phil, as you kind of move into that third area, and we're talking about reasonable fear, you know, um, I mean, we found that central to every self-defense case uh, is the concept of reasonable fear, and before deploying deadly force, an individual must believe that the threat of great bodily harm or death at the hands of another is imminent. Okay, uh, so anyone tasked with assessing whether a fear is reasonable will judge a self-defense scenario pretty much in two ways. Uh, they will decide if the fear was reasonable for the shooter, and they will decide if a hypothetical reasonable man, so someone else in that same situation, usually them, they'll put they'll place themselves, would have experienced justifiable fear in the same situation. So um, that's kind of generalizing it. So Don, kind of explain how reasonable fear came into play with uh, the Zimmerman trial.
4: Oh, yes. Thank you. Of course, at the end of the day, the jury had to decide whether Zimmerman acted lawfully. And this reasonable fear notion was really a legal element in the sense that What the jury's decision boils down to is taking a look at the scenario that Zimmerman was involved in and deciding whether knowing what he knew, that is, the background of the incident, his own personal background, his level of skill in defending himself or training, all of that stuff that led up to this, plus the exact circumstances of the confrontation would be reasonable to, to believe that you were facing uh, imminent, meaning immediate likelihood of serious bodily harm or death. So in other words, they decide if they were Zimmerman, would they, knowing what Zimmerman knew, would they have acted the same way? That's kind of a reasonable person standard, but right? the bottom line is the jury's going to take a look through the eyes of the person attacked and decide if they would have done the same thing in those circumstances. Talking more specifically about the facts of this case, we had this initial, perhaps, misdirection on the question of physical ability and capacity. In every self-defense case, one of the issues for the finder of Fact, the jury, is looking at the abilities of each of the individuals involved to see if the response was reasonable.
2: And did this and come into play with that with that photograph that was uh, circulated with for an 11 year old boy, uh, Trayvon Martin, well, right?
4: Yeah, I th- yeah, I think that was uh, the misdirection in the sense that the picture that was uh, displayed throughout the, the media was as Trayvon Martin as younger, thinner smaller, and clearly, yeah. clearly yeah. not someone who was physically capable without a weapon of seriously injuring or, or killing someone as large and as old as George Zimmerman. So that was a misdirection, but that's exactly the point. You have to take a look at that relationship and determine whether there is sort of a disproportion of ability and then whether the force used in response is reasonable and proportional. When you have someone using deadly force, uh, a gun, against someone who doesn't have a weapon, that, I think, becomes the most critical aspect uh, of the jury's decision. In the Zimmerman case, we had to overcome, I think, what was sort of a bias of the general public, who was exposed to Zimmerman as a big, strong heavy guy and uh, Trayvon Martin as a young kid with the sort of the suspension of disbelief that how could this kid actually pose a real threat to this guy so much of a threat that this guy had to shoot a gun to defend himself. So with that in mind we take a look at the actual facts of the case and is it reasonable that Zimmerman at the time that he fired the shot let's focus on that at the time he fired the shot was it reasonable for him to think that if he didn't defend himself using deadly force if he was going to be seriously injured or even killed
2: and that comes into play in a lot of different elements too is it's the reasonable force side and and you know if you have a. Like reasonable fear, reasonable force. If somebody's across a a two-lane highway and has a knife in their hand and you have a firearm, you really don't have reasonable fear they're going to cross 25 feet uh, without you being able to react. And, you know, you're not going to shoot across a street because somebody has a knife over there. That's not a reasonable fear of your life. And the other thing is...
4: Well, that's because it isn't imminent.
2: Right. they They
4: can't hurt you at that moment. So you can have fear that if he were there next to you, that you would be seriously injured or killed, but he does not have the ability the way you've described it to actually inflict that harm. So you're right. Exactly.
2: And then the other thing is reasonable force. So if, you know, and everything, everywhere we go, folks, things are videotaped. Hmm. You know, you don't even know you're on camera, but you're on camera. So, you know, if there's a, Somebody was shot once, twice, you know, somebody emptied a magazine. You don't know. I mean, those things all play out really, really bad when it comes jury time, correct?
3: No, absolutely. And and then also, uh, just to jump on that, Phil, uh, you know, the Maddox trial that we we worked this past summer uh, that that Don played a big part in, um, you know, that came up in that trial. You know, I mean, yes, we were able to uh, win the case, but um, um, absolutely believe, you know, that because... The, uh, the, the deceased um, didn't have a firearm and and our member shot him five times that came up, they were trying to push for, you know, him being excessive, you know, and, and the, the judge kind of laid it out. So if it was excessive, too many shots, you could, you could lean toward manslaughter. Right. Right. Don.
4: Well, that's exactly right. And I, I guess the, um, the catchphrase would be that you have to justify every shot independently.
2: That's interesting because when when we hear about, uh, when you see some of the police officers shootings, I mean, some of the stuff on videotape, the gun is drawn and 10 shots are done. I mean, we just saw one in Huntington Beach, a police officer involved shooting Mm -hmm. and it was a justified shooting. But I mean, I think he shot him 10, 12 times, nine millimeter at five feet, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was just, it was a one string of shots. Yeah. So. Are, are we to be one shot reassess? I mean, do you keep shooting until the threat is down like a police officer does? I mean, where, where's that fine balance?
4: That's tough, isn't it? You have it? 30, because seconds because yeah.
3: 30 seconds to answer <laughs> that. Yeah,
4: 30 seconds to answer Yeah, and you're talking about every situation being different, and the assessment is, of course, unique to that particular situation. Uh, the general rules you are allowed to shoot until the... Um, threat is neutralized. All of that is very real, but there's no clear standard on how long or how many shots. I think some defensive training programs, Dan, you can certainly talk to this uh, better than I may include shooting, reevaluating, shooting more, but that's of course, very
2: dependent on the, on the time situation. Okay. We're going to, we're going to hop out to a, to a break here. We'll pick it up right away here with uh, Don, Uh, West, Esquire, and Dr. Stan Campbell, CCW (laughs) Safe. We'll be right back after this.
6: Are you an expert marksman looking for a clean, safe place to shoot? Or maybe you've never shot a gun but want to learn? Well, the Riverside Indoor Shooting Range is the best place to work on your shooting skills, no matter what your experience level is. With 21,000 square feet of indoor range space, 35 shooting lanes, and an electronic target retrieval system, it means no line breaks and more trigger time. The friendly people at Riverside Indoor Shooting Range can answer all All your questions about firearms training, self-defense training, firearm rentals, gunsmithing, archery, and more. And for the ladies, the Riverside chapter of The Well-Armed Woman meets there the second Tuesday of each month for women of all experience levels. Looking for a great holiday gift for the shooting enthusiast in your life? During the month of December, get 10% off a full year's membership or 10% off any gift certificate of $40 or more. Riverside Indoor Shooting Range. For directions and info, log on to RiversideIndoorShootingRange.com. That's
1: RiversideIndoorShootingRange.com. AM 590. Enter. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by the Riverside Indoor Shooting Range and CCW Safe.
6: Spartans! Lay down your weapons! Pleasure! Come and get them!
2: Hey folks, Philip Neyman, Firing Line Radio Show. Check us out on our Facebook page at Firing Line Radio Show or online at FiringLineRadio.com where you can get all the podcasts. And uh, matter of fact, I forgot to thank my guests who came in here last week. I had uh, Rex Reviews, RexReviews.org. They are doing the RX-18 class at Bass Pro Shops. going to be President's Day weekend in February. Go to RexReviews.org. If you want to learn about long-range precision shooting, this is where you need to go. This is a great seminar. We're actually going to have a shooting day on uh, St. Patrick's Day weekend in March up in Avenal on the range we like to go to up there. So if you want to get involved in long-range shooting, this is your opportunity. If you are long-range shooting but would like to make first-round hits at distance, this is your opportunity because we can all learn from the experts. So come out there with uh, Rex Tybor, Taborosaurus Rex. We'll have a great time. That's at Bass Pro Shops on February President's Day week. I think it's the 16th, 17th of uh, February. And it's going to be a great time from uh, 10 to 6. It's a seminar. Check it out at rexreviews.org. So thank them for doing a couple of shows for me while I was out of town. But jumping right back into this, I've got Don West, Esquire, and Dr. Stan Campbell. Doctor, are we going to go into what kind of doctor you No, we'll just leave that there, won't we? We'll just let that lay. Leave that
3: in 2017. (laughs)
2: Uh, he's the COO of CCW Safe. CCW Safe is the legal defense that you need to have for if you own a CCW. Here in uh, Riverside, San Bernardino County, we have lots of people with CCWs. You need to have this as your backup, and you're learning all about why. This is Don West was the one of the lead criminal defense attorneys for the Zimmerman case, and we're talking about that. As, as we just got through our last couple of sessions, we're talking about reasonable force, um, in certain situations. And in the Zimmerman case, that came in into play in a different way.
3: Yeah. And, um, you know, just to to jump in there, um, Phil, we are, I'm going to get, have Don kind of move back into the reasonable fear aspect that we were t- discussing with, with uh, the Zimmerman trial, you know, because there, there were certain things that came up, um, you know, for one of um, the, the evidence in reference to, you know, uh, Zimmerman being punched in the nose and wrestled to the ground, um, you know, um, also, Don, hey, Don, if you could, l- let's talk about the, the 911 recording and, and the eye and ear witnesses that came into play, reference to that.
4: Yes, of course. In this context of reasonable fear includes whether reasonable force was used and whether or not the person using that force reasonably believed that if they didn't, That they're going to be seriously injured or, or, or killed. And in the context of the Zimmerman case, one of the neighbors who was close enough to hear what was going on but wasn't able to see it because their blinds were down, they heard what started as a verbal exchange and then they heard what was some scuffling and they called 911. It was estimated maybe 20 seconds or so after they noticed the commotion that they were able to get through and interestingly for the next minute or so as the neighbor is talking to the dispatcher you can hear in the background the clear clear yelling for help over just 30 or 40 45 seconds you can hear it 10 12 uh, times where it is it seems to me anybody who heard that recording would come away with the belief that the person screaming for help was in fear for their life.
2: Let me ask this quick question and, here since you know these people. The person who didn't look outside was listening through the. Was this a man or a woman?
4: The woman, uh, a woman called 911. Her husband was there with her. What they did was they called 911 and then moved back away from the porch they were on into the kitchen to talk to the police. I think they were confused and scared. I also think that it happened pretty quickly and I do think though they made a conscious decision not to look outside which would have required them to go to the door and open it or pull the blinds and they clearly made a conscious decision not to go outside. uh, Like like an ostrich,
2: huh? (laughs) Great, great neighbors. You want to have these people with your back. Yeah. Okay, go ahead.
4: Well, what we do know from that recording is that there was a scuffle of some kind, and we know that there were pleas, cries for help. So one of the big issues in the case became who was screaming. Was it George Zimmerman or Trayvon Martin? Once law enforcement got there, it was clear that George Zimmerman had been injured. He had a bloody nose. He had uh, his nose was deviated. He had other cuts and scratches, and he had a number of welts on the back of his head, pretty good-sized lumps that were uh, attributed to having his head um, slammed onto the concrete sidewalk that was right there. So he had injuries that the prosecutor tried to downplay. But at the same time, there was clear medical evidence that he could have lost consciousness at any point. One never knows when you're having your head banged against a hard surface, which one is going to render you helpless or kill you. So I don't think that went over very well. And the bottom line was that it was George Zimmerman that was injured and uh, Trayvon Martin wasn't. The Other most important aspect, I think, of the reasonableness of Zimmerman's uh, decision to shoot was, well, two aspects. One, he didn't shoot right away. This recording goes on for over 40 seconds before the shot is fired. And we have an eyewitness who looks out, actually steps out on the back porch and sees the person clearly identified as George Zimmerman on his back and the person identified as Trayvon Martin straddling him, mounting him, as he described, MMA style. Now, George Zimmerman made the foolish mistake of saying that he had been trained in martial arts. We wound up calling the owner of the gym where he worked out to say he really never had any training, he was not physical, he was, as he described him, soft, so that he really didn't have the ability or the capacity, especially in that position, to defend himself physically. Um, We also knew that uh, Trayvon Martin was athletic he'd been a football player, he was pretty well-developed, uh, muscular-wise, physically for his age, and uh, he'd been in fights
5: before,
4: and that he clearly had superior knowledge and athletic ability. So when you put all of that together, Zimmerman being hit in the head, face, his head bashed on the concrete, in a vulnerable position, I think the jury ultimately realized that at the moment he decided to um, draw his gun and fire it, that it was reasonable that he believed if he didn't do it, he was going to be further injured or killed. And And I
2: think, yeah, I think a good point on that is that uh, he was armed all the time, right? He always had his gun on him. Mm -hmm. So when Trayvon Trayvon came out of the shadows and approached him, he didn't draw and fire right then. You know, he wasn't hunting this guy down.
3: Correct.
4: That seems to be clear from the evidence, although that got distorted uh, in in the media representations of it. And you can look at this case from a tactical defensive um, view and see how many mistakes Zimmerman (laughs) made in that regard. Uh, Number one being that he allowed this person coming out of the shadows to get within arm's reach of him and actually hit him right square in the nose. So he was immediately, at least partially, incapacitated. What's the um, what's the Mike Tyson phrase? When mm-hmm. you guys will remember Everybody
2: that? Everybody has a plan until you get hit,
3: until you get punched in the face. Hit in the
4: face, yeah. yeah. That's
2: right. Really, really. um,
4: so I think, I think you're right. He didn't use the gun right away. In fact, uh, most people sort of objectively analyzing this and putting some of the hot buttons to the side would say in that same situation, they may may have acted even faster. Uh, And frankly, I don't know if Zimmerman was able to act any faster than he did, given the circumstances.
3: Well, he was kind of soft. Yeah. Hey, Donna, we're we're, going to move into the the next segment, but I want you to finish that, that up. And then I also want you to kind of break down a definition for disparity of force for us as well and how that came into play.
2: Well, I think he just, he so just I, did that. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I,
4: I think the clear disparity of force starts with a guy with a gun um, shooting a guy that doesn't have one. Mm-hmm. And then you have to look and see, is there, in fact, that real disparity? Like in the Maddox case we talked about, um, the attacker was clearly physically overpowering. He weighed almost 300 pounds. He was 6'3 or 4. Stephen Maddox didn't have a chance against him. And uh, had to use his firearm, and had to shoot, um, had to shoot him five times before it stopped. Uh, looking at the Zimmerman case, for example, there was one shot. It was clearly a direct response to him pulling the gun and firing it. Had Zimmerman fired three or four times, or fired after the immediate threat was neutralized, then he would have been convicted. Right. Because, as I said before, you have to justify every shot legally.
2: There you go. Folks, Philip Naman, Fireland Radio Show. We'll be right back after this with Don West and Dr. Stan Campbell.
5: If you carry a concealed weapon and own a concealed carry permit, you need protection beyond the weapon. My name is Larry Vickers, and I am a retired veteran of U.S. Special Operations, and I now teach law enforcement, civilians, and members of our military in advanced firearm training. I train people to use their firearms in almost any situation, but I can't prepare them for what happens if they are forced to use a gun to save their lives. That's why I use CCW Safe. They offer membership plans for concealed carry permit holders, and if members are involved in a use of force incident, CCW Safe provides expert witnesses, investigators, and the best defense attorneys in the U.S. Yearly plans range from $99 for a single membership to $150 for a dual membership, and special plans are available for law enforcement and military. Members are required to have a valid concealed carry permit and must maintain their permit. Visit CCWSAFE.com today.
1: AM 590, the answer. (laughs) This portion of the Firing Line is brought to you by Prado Olympic Shooting Park in Chino and Vortex Optics. Vortex, the force of optics.
0: Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this
4: not
7: why you are here?
2: Hey folks, Philip Neyman, Firing Line Radio Show. And as I've been telling you before, next week we're going to have Vince Torres on this show talking to you about all the changes and the laws that have happened for 2018. So he'll be here on... uh, next week's show also on President's Day weekend in February we have the Bass Pro Shops RX-18 long range precision shooting seminar you're going to want to be involved in that we did it in uh, September we had 45 guys show it was a full room it was a great time uh, so we're doing it again because there's a great need for it and a lot of people went hunting in september so hey this is february 16th 17th you're not hunting come on out for that at uh, bass pro shops check out more at rexreviews.org joining me again i have the esteemable don west esquire and doctor from hunts forever called doctor on this program dr stan campbell ceo of ccw safe um, and we only we only made that official because you asked me not to. Yeah, you know how I roll. I can't believe you fell for that.
3: Yeah, you, you don't have many friends, and it's going to continue in 2018. So <laughs> no matter how
2: much I pay them, yeah, I don't no get matter this. how
3: much. You know, you know. And before we get out, go too far. Uh, you know, Don talked about some things, and so did you, feel about you know reasonable fear and reasonable force. And you talked about the police shooting, and I just wanted to follow up real quick before we get off that. And 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 we're not telling anyone not to continue. Uh, to do what you're supposed to do to stay alive, which is to shoot until the threat has stopped. Uh, but but we are st- stating that, you know, you are during that shooting. You're going to have to, you know, reassess as you're pulling the trigger. Is it still a threat? You know, because I mean, we've seen cases in which um, the suspect is incapacitated and the initial shooting was awesome, uh, meaning the response was proper and legal and then um you know there's a reload that goes on and the person goes up and then you know finishes them off you right, know
2: like that famous pharmacy scene. the pharmacy
3: scene. Yeah, yeah shooting i mean and, and that does happen i mean it turns into a situation where you know each shooting burst is evaluated and assessed on its own and you know that's some of the legal issues that you'll run into you know if if the threat is over you must stop firing so that's kind of you know that thing so in reference to training you know paper training you know shooting paper targets is awesome but you really need to you know do some high end training um stress induced yeah stress induced training you know do different things you know i always suggest to even during you know you're just on a regular firing line you know after you release your last bullet you know just start verbalizing you know as if you're calling 911 you know say you know You know, tell them what you're wearing and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm I'm in threat of my life. And and that's just something to practice so that you know what to do when it really happens, because you're going to, you know, you kind of lose some of that.
2: That's important. I think the other thing is CCW firearms. Eventually, I mean, everybody... Like when I went through my first course, they talked about the size of the guns that you carry. And they said, don't worry, when you come to Renew, everybody's going to put smaller guns on, right? <laughs> because you just don't want to carry – a, you can't wear jackets out here most of the year, so you don't want to carry a big gun. Um, so a lot of guys go down for like a three eighty mm-hmm. or a short-barreled 9mm or even a thirty eight special 2-inch, which, which although they can be lethal, they don't have a whole lot of stopping or knockdown power where mm-hmm. somebody's hit with a three eighty you may not see an immediate effect.
3: No, you're right. And, and then you know, and people must understand, especially those who don't shoot often or who don't go hunting, that um, you. It's not like Hollywood. You know, you don't just shoot yeah. one shot and they flip over and do a backflip over a car. You know, it's sometimes depending on you know. The well, they do speed. with a couple of my guns, yeah. Yeah, with your guns, yes. Yeah. But with with the speed of the suspect and you know um, whatever he might have on board, meaning like drugs or alcohol. Um, that person might continue forward and that forward movement, you know, will still add to that fear and the reason why you continue to, you know, but be ready to articulate, you know, why that happened. And, and, you know, that's a good thing about us with CCW safe is that, we you know, we try to protect that first 24 hours before you sit down and have an interview. So don't immediately give an, uh, you know, interview up because, you know, I mean, although the police are just, uh, I mean, they're not your friend. They're they're not your enemy, but they're just going through the motions and doing their jobs. They're
2: writing down everything you say. Yeah,
3: this is writing down. You know what you say. And but, this
2: is post incident. The last. Yeah, the last yeah. Year I want to
3: talk yeah, about. we're going to talk about that in a second. But you know, I'm just saying. You know, just. Just think about these things before you, um, as you train and, and be ready and, and get your mind ready for these, these different things. And then you're right, Phil. Let's move into post-incident actions. So post-incident actions is really the last element in the area that we're going to be discussing. So once a person is fired in self-defense, you know, every action afterwards uh, will be scrutinized by law enforcement. And in effect, uh, their, their decisions uh, regarding whether or not to press charges. You know, if charges are filed, you know, the post incident actions will heavily impact uh, the defense strategy as well. You know, you have, um, you know, how many times the shooter fires, um, how he reports the shooting. How he cooperates with the police, whether he documents any injuries—all these factors, you know, become very important in the defense of your case as well. Most recent
2: Facebook post?
3: No, absolutely, yeah. I and mean, we'll, we'll get into that, you know, as, as Don follows through with this. So, Don, kind of talk about, um, you know, what George did on his post-incident actions, and you know, the pros and cons of of his actions.
4: Let's uh, let's put that in the. Uh, uh back into the factual framework for a second. Keep in mind that uh, Zimmerman called the non-emergency number for the uh, Tampa Police Department several minutes before the shooting actually occurred. He saw Trayvon Martin walking. He didn't recognize him. He called and asked for a, an officer to respond. So everything that happened after that was with the knowledge that the police were on the way it took just a few minutes so if we fast forward to the shot itself um law enforcement was there in less than a minute a much different scenario than you would typically have also there was a neighbor who had heard the shot and some of the commotion who did decide to come outside and got there probably less than 20 seconds after the shot was fired So, Zimmerman did most things right if we're looking at the important things. Number one, establish, yes, that you were the person that fired the shot and that you did it in self-defense. If you hem and haw and say the gun went off by accident or I wasn't sure I bent it, you wind up pretty much gutting any self-defense claim that you have. Self-defense using deadly forces is that you took those actions purposefully because you felt threatened enough that you were legally justified to do it. So Zimmerman said, yes, I was being attacked. Uh, I shot. Uh, I shot. He also said, I was screaming for help and no one helped me. That helped solidify the reasonableness of his fear, because he was, in fact, screaming for help, and, in fact, no one came to help him. And I think even more importantly, as a a subtext here, that the attack continued. So not only was nobody helping him, but the attack continued, so that underscored and helped um, establish the reasonableness of the fear. He did the other safety things. He holstered the gun. He was cooperative. He Uh, did not pose any threat to any witnesses or uh, law enforcement, and he was completely cooperative with law enforcement. It turned out that his cooperation ultimately helped him, or at least it didn't hurt him. There were some inconsistencies in his various statements. He gave several lengthy statements, including a video interview where he attempted to recreate the incident, all without the benefit of counsel. While he got some things wrong, he didn't, uh, he didn't undermine his self-defense claim. What we're talking about here is what Stan touched on, and I think it's pretty accepted that when you go through a traumatic event, such as having to defend your life against an attacker, some things happen to you physically and psychologically and emotionally, and it's just even you, though you intend to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth so help you, you can't. You get things wrong, you get things out of sequence. So our advice is provide necessary information, be cooperative, but don't give a full detailed statement without the benefit of counsel and also the passage of time. Um, I'll digress for just a second. I've been involved consulting on a shooting uh, case where one of the victim police officers, while not actually shot, he was part of a shooting after the incident um, was sent home and told, we'll call you in a few days to give your statement. And he was taken off duty. He was given three or four days just to stay at home and then brought in and, and interviewed. The need for some space and some time to reflect and uh, process what had just happened is uh, critically important. So that's why we don't recommend an immediate full debriefing, even though you might want to, right. because you want to get your story out and convince the police that you are the victim.
2: So, folks, I want to thank my guest, Don West, Esquire, the best criminal defense attorney. I hope you never need him, but it's great to get his advice. And Dr. Stan Campbell, COO of CCW Safe if you have a CCW and you don't have CCW Safe, you are taking risks for your family's future that you don't need to. So check them out at ccwsafe.com. And uh, they've got great family plans.
3: Yep. Very and, inexpensive. And, yep. And, and then we also take care of those who don't have concealed carry and you uh, just defend your, your home.
2: Your home defense. That's right. That's a new new product for this year. Guys, thank you for being on my show and we'll have a happy new year. Talk to you guys later. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> When you have to shoot, shoot. Don't talk.
1: The Firing Line Radio Show has been brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside, the Riverside Indoor Shooting Range, CCW Safe, Mop and Financial Advisors, Cutting Edge Bullets for when you care enough to send the very best, Prado Olympic Shooting Park in Chino, and Vortex Optics. Vortex, the force of optics.